turn with me in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue this wonderful letter together this morning. Americans, especially Americans with a more conservative political bent, are known for individualism. This is the perspective of the world and government that emphasizes personal rights and personal responsibility. And it creates an atmosphere of of healthy competition in which hard work is rewarded and laziness is not. As individuals work hard and maximize their skills and abilities, the community as a whole is benefited. I think it's probably safe to say that most, if not all of us in this room this morning, at least lean towards the conservative side of the spectrum when it comes to politics And while there are are many benefits to a a commitment to this idea of rugged individualism when it comes to politics, many have unfortunately applied that same idea to their understanding of the church. And when individualism is applied to the Christian life and life in the local church, the results are disastrous. What happens is there becomes this emphasis solely on having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that is self-sufficient and undependent upon the relationships with other believers. When this happens, it creates this strange imbalance where some even say, why do I need to go to church? After all, I have a Bible. I love Jesus. I don't need the church. Others who do go to church but maintain this idea of individualism come to church often with a consumeristic mentality. I come to church to see what it can do for me, how it can benefit my personal relationship with Christ. And therefore, the the, the bulk of the time spent there is focused on self-expression and self-connection with God. Many churches contribute to this individualistic idea by trying to create an atmosphere in the room in which you can easily block out the people around you so that while there may be thousands in the room, you can have your own private worship service with God. The results then are people standing shoulder to shoulder and yet totally alone with the Lord in their minds. Now you might say, what's wrong with that? After all, the Bible does talk about us being saved as individuals and having an individual relationship with God. That's absolutely true. The problem is this mentality misses the heart of God's plan of redemption. What God is doing through the Lord Jesus Christ is not saving random individuals that will remain individuals, but he's saving individuals who will be grafted into a body who will become one people, Christ's church. That's why the illustrations of the church in Scripture focus on not only the individual nature of our salvation, but how we are attached to the collective whole. Think, for instance, of the church as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church as a building, the church as a family the church as a vine with many branches. All of these illustrations that we have in the scripture deal with the fact that, yes, we are individuals who are saved and gifted for service in the church, but we are intricately connected to the whole body. Therefore, the Christian life is not intended just to be lived out for my personal walk with the Lord and my personal growth, although I ought to be concerned about that, 
But I ought to equally be concerned with the growth of this group collectively. That we as a body of believers are growing into maturity in Christ. There are several passages that emphasize this. Ephesians 4 comes to mind. Ephesians 4 verses 11 to 13. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see there the the leaders of the church are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. As the saints perform that work of ministry and they serve one another, the body as a whole is brought to maturity in Christ. In the book of Colossians, Paul has also mentioned this idea in Colossians 1.28. He says, this is really the sum total of his ministry. We proclaim him, that is Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is the biblical understanding of the Christian life. We as individuals are saved, yes, but we serve the body as a whole so that we might collectively grow in Christ. And Paul has been giving us several virtues that we must put on in the church in order to attain this growth. And we'll talk about those in a moment to remind ourselves. But those virtues are tied to this idea of us growing in maturity as a body of believers. And we're going to look at that extensively this morning in our text. Before we do that, let me just remind you of a couple of key things from things we've studied in the book of Colossians that tie into where we are. Remember the theme of the book as a whole is the all-sufficiency of Christ. From the beginning, Paul has been exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, teaching us of his sufficiency and his preeminence. And if you were with us in chapter 2, you'll remember that Paul dealt with false teachers and false teaching. There, There were false teachers in and around the church in Colossae that were trying to tempt the people to follow Christ or to grow in Christ based on works righteousness. They were tempting the people with things like legalism, and mysticism, and asceticism. But Paul says all of those are inadequate substitutes for the true biblical model of change. He says this in Colossians 1.23, these are matters, talking about the things the false teachers are are teaching in 2.23, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. He says those works-based systems of legalism and mysticism and asceticism, they won't help you when it comes to producing true holiness in your life. And then in chapter 3, he begins to lay out for us, if you want to follow Christ, if you want to know what the Christian life is really about, here it is. This is the structure again of chapter 3. We've seen the Christian perspective in verses 1 to 4 and the Christian life in verses 5 to 17. We are to be mortifying sin and pursuing righteousness. And you remember now, I hope you have these steps memorized. You're probably saying them in your sleep, but these are the steps of the process of change. Here's how we really grow in holiness. We put off sin, renew our mind with the truth of Scripture, and put on righteousness. That brings us to... 
our text. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Our verse today will be verse 14, but let's read all the way from 12 to 17. Paul writes, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now we've been parsing out together one key theme that really runs through this entire section. Every Christian must proactively put sin to death and pursue righteousness. As we read in our text there, you see in verse 12, he describes believers as those who are chosen of God, holy and beloved. And those descriptions of who we are in Christ, as we've said, are to motivate us to obey this great command to put on righteousness. You'll remember we've seen five virtues that we're to put on. We talked about these as being the, the spiritual clothes that we're to wear as believers towards one another. Remember, they were heartfelt compassion. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then last week, we saw that there are two fruits that are inevitable. If we put on these five virtues in the church, we will bear these fruits. Fruit number one will be a church that bears with one another, that bears and endures one another's weaknesses. And secondly, we will be a church that forgives, forgives the sins of others against us. But to close out this section of, on putting on righteousness, Paul now moves to verse 14, and he's, he saved one key virtue for last. There is one essential virtue that is more important than all the rest. It's the essential virtue of love, of love. Verse 14, he says, Beyond all these things, beyond all could be translated above all. It is of central importance, more important than all of these things. These things must refer to the other virtues, those five virtues that Paul's already mentioned, as well as the two fruits of bearing with one another and forgiving one another. He says there is something that you have to clothe yourself in that's even more important than those other five virtues and even more important than bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And, and this is not to undercut the importance of the other virtues. I mean, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, these are key virtues for the Christian life. We must be characterized by these things. But Paul's intention is to draw our attention to one central truth, and that is that there is an essential virtue that we cannot miss. This all-important virtue, as we've said, is love. Verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love. 
Now understand, in the Greek text, the word put on, or words put on, are not here in verse 14. They're borrowed from verse 12. In, in Greek, it's very acceptable not to use a verb if the verb is assumed. Here, the verb is assumed because he's borrowing it from verse 12. But remember, that command to put on was, in fact, a command. It was not an optional uh, request that Paul gave us. But here, this should have the same force of a command for us. We are to put on actively love, the virtue of love. What is love? The Greek word here is one you'll recognize, it's the word agape. And if you want just a, a, a definition of this Greek word, it's this. A quality, or the quality, of warm regard for an interest in another. It can be translated to esteem, or affection, or regard, or here, love. So in essence, Paul is commanding that we put on love towards one another, meaning that we intentionally choose to cultivate warm regard and interest in the other believers in our church. Remember what separates the love of Christ for his people from the worldly kind of love that we see displayed before us in this fallen world is that Christ set his love on us when we were unworthy. So he chose to have warm regard and interest in us, to highly esteem us, to have affection for us when we didn't deserve it. And that's what Paul is calling us to do here, to choose to put on love towards one another in the church. But why? What makes love so essential? I mean, why didn't Paul just put love on the list with the other virtues? He could have done that. It wouldn't have matched the other list of five. But he could have just tagged love onto that list. Why take the time to give a whole verse to just this one virtue? Well, the second half of the verse explains why love is so essential. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The perfect bond of unity. Now, I have to pause here just for a moment and admit that this Greek phrase is a little bit difficult to interpret. In fact, it's, it's so difficult that almost none of the English translations translate it literally. They translate it interpretively. That means they add words to the translation to try to help you understand what Paul means. The only translation that I saw that translates it word for word is actually the New King James Version. And this is the, this is the literal translation of this phrase, which is the bond of perfection which is the bond of perfection. That's what Paul actually says. I'm not overly a fan of interpretive translations because it pulls the, the power of interpretation away from the reader and it makes you depend upon the translator. So I, I would much prefer to just take the words as they are and let's deal with those. So we're going to take a, a literal translation. In fact, here's a literal translation of the entire verse. And above all these... Borrowing the verb, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Above all these, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Obviously, understanding this verse depends on us understanding this phrase, the bond of perfection. If we miss that, we miss the entirety of Paul's point. The first part of the verse is really simple, put on love. We've already looked at put on. We know what that means. It's very clear. The second half is not quite 
as intuitive, and yet once we're done, I think you'll understand why Paul put so much emphasis on this truth. There are really two options for what Paul could be saying here, and I want to give these to you because I think they will will help clear this up. Some commentators prefer option one. Paul could be saying that love binds all of the other virtues together in perfection. So love, in in this interpretation, love is the glue that holds together compassion and humility and patience, so on and so forth. And, And that could be true. You wouldn't be a heretic to believe that. Many commentators hold that view. In fact, I think the concept is true. I think there are other passages that teach that. But I don't think that that's Paul's point here in this verse. I prefer instead option two, which is this, this interpretation. Love binds believers together and ultimately results in the perfection of the body as a whole. Love binds us together as believers and ultimately produces the maturity in Christ, perfection in Christ as a body. William Hendrickson explains it this way. Love, then, is the bond of perfection in the sense that it is that which unites believers, causing them to move forward toward the goal of perfection. This is why I introduced the message by reminding you of Colossians 1.28, because we already have a hint that Paul is thinking this way as he writes this letter. Remember what we read, Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, Why? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. That word complete shares the exact same root as the word translated perfection. It's it's the same Greek word, just a different form of the word. In fact, Ephesians 4, the other text we read at the beginning of the message, has another version of the same word. Ephesians 4, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. That word mature, also the same Greek word, just a slightly different form. This Greek word that's used here can be translated in any of those ways as mature, perfection. It it deals with reaching the goal, reaching the end. Not to mention, Paul has already said in chapter 2 that it is love that knits us together. Colossians chapter 2, specifically verse 2, but beginning in verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. So let's tie all this together. Here's what Paul means. Here's the summary. Love is the essential virtue because it's the virtue that binds us to one another as we carry out the mission that the church has to itself. You understand the church has a mission to itself? We talk about the church's mission a lot. The Bible describes the mission of the church in three ways. We have a mission to the world, which is making disciples through evangelism. We have a, a mission to God, that is to glorify God and to uphold. Remember, we are the church is the pillar and the support of the, support of the truth, a verse we've been memorizing, hopefully, for small groups. And then also, the church has a mission to itself. That was Ephesians 4, the building up of the body, edification of the body until we all reach maturity in Christ. That is the mission of the church in summary. 
And so love binds us together as we carry out this mission to the church of edifying one another and building one another up in love until we all reach maturity. Clearly then, love is the virtue of all virtues that must define each individual Christian and it must define us as a church. If we're going to be a church that actually lives out Ephesians 4, where the, the leaders are equipping the saints for the work of ministry and the saints are doing the work of ministry and the body's being edified, we as a church must put on love. That's Paul's point. Well, that's hopefully clear and encouraging, but you may wonder how. How exactly does putting on love accomplish all this? What is it about love that makes it so significant? Well, this week, what I did is I looked at every usage of the word love in the scriptures and began to look for some patterns that would help us answer that question. And specifically, the use of the word love as it relates to what Paul is saying here. And I boiled that down into two key realities about love that I think will help us understand why Paul is saying that it is the bond of perfection. So we're going to look at these two realities. We're going to actually look at a lot of scripture together, but don't lose the point. The point is an explanation of how love functions as this key virtue that binds us together in the process of building one another up through edification. So here is the key, first key reality about love that the scriptures teach. Love is the defining virtue of a true disciple. Love is the defining virtue of a true disciple. I'm going to give you several proofs of this from scripture, proofs of this reality. The first proof is the Bible teaches that believers are the recipients of God's love in Christ. We see this in several places, but remember Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us. How? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How about Ephesians 1, 5 to 6? In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. But not only has God loved us in Christ, but it's his love that the scriptures say should motivate us to love one another. Remember 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a great word. It means the perfect satisfaction of the wrath of God. So he's saying to be the perfect satisfaction of the wrath of God for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. This is key to our exercise of love one another, loving one another. The first reason that this is such a key virtue that we must put on is because it's a characteristic of how God has treated us. He has lavished his love on us. And that has not only brought us to salvation, but it has given us the ability by the power of the Spirit to show that love to one another. In fact, love was so important in the mind of Christ that Jesus explains that the greatest commandments in the law 
come back to the expression of this virtue of love, first to God and then to one another. You remember this, Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. I'm just going to pick up in verse 37. And he said to them, this is the greatest commandment in the law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And listen to this statement in verse 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus says all of the scripture depends on these two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. But the virtue of love is not just important for the old covenant. It's essential in the new covenant. It's to be so characteristic of Christians that Jesus said that people will be able to identify that you belong to him by your love. This is the second proof of this first reality. Jesus' true disciples are identified by love. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this... All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, the emphasis here is on the fact that we are those who have received the the perfect, gracious love of God, and therefore we are to extend that love to each other in the body of Christ. But the Apostle John takes that truth that Jesus gave and gives us a key implication He takes it one step further. Here's a third proof of this first reality that this is the the key virtue in the Christian life. True believers love other believers. You can almost see the Apostle John thinking on what Jesus had told them, that all men would know them by their love. And John boils that down to this crucial implication. Listen to 1 John 3, verse 14. He says, We know that we have passed out of death into life, Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. How about 1 John 4, 7-9, the next chapter. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love, listen to this, does not know God. For God is love. In layman's terms, you want to know what John just said? He said, if you don't love other Christians, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. God is defined by love, particularly the special love he's extended towards his own. And John says, if you have no love in your heart for the people of God, then you don't belong to God. You are still dead in your sins, in need of salvation. You see how intrinsic this virtue of love is to the Christian. It's the very definition. The reason is, one final proof, number four, is the Holy Spirit produces love in every believer. This is why John could say so confidently, if you're a Christian, you will love other Christians. Why? Because of the work of the Holy Spirit. You remember the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. It heads the list. And many, many argue that it heads the list, and I believe so as well, because it is the chief of the fruits of the Spirit from which the others flow. That's why I said that concept is true. We see it here in Galatians 5. It's the chief 
fruit of the Spirit. If you're a believer, the Spirit produces love. Friends, don't miss the, the very personal implication of this truth. If you're here this morning and you think of yourself as a Christian, and you claim to love God, but you really could care less for His people. Perhaps you think that you and God are good. It's just His people that you have a problem with. Understand, the Scriptures clearly teach that if that is true, you are sadly deceived. You're deceived about your own salvation. The Bible says that you are not of God if you do not love the people of God. Therefore, that means... The honest truth is you're still dead in your sins in need of the rescue of God through Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel stands for you this morning. That if you will come to the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding that only by repenting and putting your faith in Him can you be made right with God, then you will be forgiven of your sins and made new. And here's the thing, not only saved but transformed so that the love that God extends to you in the gospel, you will then by the power of the Spirit be able to give to others. We begin to practice the love that's been extended to us as we read in 1 John 4.10. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Come to him humbly this morning in true repentance because of this first reality. Love is the defining virtue of a true disciple. That's why Paul says, first of all, it is the bond of perfection because it is what makes you a Christian. Not in the sense that we show love to be saved, but as Jesus said, people will know that you are one of mine when you display this kind of love. But there's a second reality that if you survey the scriptures on love, you will come to understand that love is also the defining virtue of church life. You might call it body life. What I mean is it's the defining virtue of how we interact with one another and serve one another in the church. It's essential to us as individual Christians, but as Paul's been reminding us here in Colossians 3, it's essential to us as a church as a whole. There are several proofs of this as well. I want you to see, first of all, proof number one, the reason that this is a defining virtue for the church is because love covers sin. Love covers sin. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10.12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. You know, last week we talked about the truth that we are to forgive one another in the church. You know, sometimes a person sins against you in such an obvious way that there's an immediate rift in your relationship. And in order for that rift to be solved, uh, the person's got to come and repent and you have to extend forgiveness. But many times we're sinned against by others in the church in such a way that they're not even aware that they've offended us. They're not even aware that they've stepped on our toes. Does that mean that we have to go to to a brother or sister every single time they commit one of these unknown errors and confront them for their sin, calling them to repentance? The biblical answer is no. There's another option. 1 Peter 4.8 says, cover it with love. We can simply cover it with love. What does that mean? It means that we can choose to forgive that offense and to let go of that offense and any emotions connected to it towards that person simply by covering it with the love of Christ. 
recognizing that God has extended his love to us in Christ, and we can extend that love to one another and just cover that sin. Just cover it. This is why we must actively keep fervent in our love for one another, because only when we're keeping fervent in love can we cover sins with love. It means we choose not to take offense at every time a person uses the wrong tone of voice or does some other thing, some slight sin against us. I want you to think about this. Do you realize that you've committed, and so have I, countless sins against God that you're completely unaware of? It is true that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. He does it on a daily basis. But did you know the Holy Spirit doesn't commit, convict you of every single sin you've ever committed? If God were to convict us of every single sin we've ever committed, we would be crushed continually under the weight of grief. We would find that even our best moments, the moments that we are most sure of our salvation because of how we responded, even there, there was likely some hint of sin in our thoughts or motivations. Instead, there are so many sins that God has covered with his love and you will never know you've committed them against him. When you repented of your sins and you came to God and repented of the things you knew of, he knew you were leaving out a whole lot. But he says, the sinner that comes to me in humble repentance and faith, I will forgive, and I will cast his sins as far from me as the east is from the west. That means you'll never know that you committed those against him, and neither will I. And so when Peter tells us that we can keep fervent in our love for one another and cover the the sins of others with love, we are mimicking our God. We don't have to demand repentance every time someone steps on our toe. We certainly don't need to seethe in resentment towards them, but we can cover it with love and let it go. There are times, let me be clear, that a sin is so severe Or there's a pattern of sin in which it must be confronted. That's a biblical idea. The Bible teaches even to the point of church discipline at times we have to confront sin. But let's be honest. The vast majority of the time when people sin against us, it's these small sins that if we would just think of what God has done for us in Christ, we could just cover it with the love of Christ. There's a second crucial way that love defines church life. Not only are we to be covering sin with love, but proof number two, love ensures edification. And this gets right to the heart of how love is the bond of perfection. You see, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the theme of that letter is correction and condemnation. Paul writes to the Corinthians to correct them on a number of things they're doing wrong in the church. But one of those things is they're using their spiritual gifts that God has given them for self-edification rather than for edification of the body. They're using their gifts in the church so that others will look at them and think highly of them rather than using their gifts to build others up. Paul says that the key to ensuring that our exercise of our gifts actually accomplishes edification is doing it in love. This is what he says to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3. He says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. 
And if I give all my possessions to the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. This is one of those passages that we, we get caught up in the beautiful language. Maybe you have it memorized, or at least at some point in your life you have. And, and we, just, we, we love the way it's just sort of poetically written. But if we, we get caught up in that, we can miss the blistering truth of what Paul is really saying. He's actually getting on to the Corinthians here. He, he's scolding them because they've been using their gifts to exalt themselves without love, and what he's saying is, guess what? It's been worthless. It's not had the effect of building up the church. He's using hyperbole here. He's saying, look, you want to speak in tongues? Guess what? If you had the ability to speak in every human language and even languages of angels, but you did it without love, it's a waste. It's nothing. By the way, he's not saying that we actually speak in languages of angels. He's using hyperbole. He goes on. If you, if you know prophecy, you know things that are going to happen ahead of time. And, and you have all knowledge. I mean, you know it all. But you don't have love. It's not going to build up the body. It's not going to have a, a healthy effect on the, the people of God. It's going to earn you no reward and benefit them none. But... If you want the gifts that God's given you, and if you're a Christian, you've been given a spiritual gift for the, for the benefit of the body. If you want that gift to be beneficial and really build up the church, this is what it will look like. He describes it this way, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Oh, when we have the love of Christ reigning in our hearts for one another, you see, all of these other fruits come flowing out. You see how the other fruits are connected to love here. Patience and kindness and a lack of jealousy, a lack of pride. All of that's bound up in love. What Paul is getting at here in in 1 Corinthians is that if you want to use your gifts in a way that will build up the church, you've got to put on love because love will control the use of that gift so that you not only do the right thing, but you do it in the right way with the right motivation. Love binds us together as a body of believers in such a way that the leaders are equipping in love and the saints are serving in love and the result is the body is built up into a mature man. Earlier when I read Ephesians chapter 4, I stopped after verse 13, but I want to go on now and read the rest of that section. I want you to see how love is connected To this, Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11, where we already read, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." 
that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What I want you to see is this concept of love is, is tied to the mission of the church to itself. We use our gifts, we even speak the truth, clothed in the virtue of love, and then it has the effect that Christ intends for it to have. You may not know this, but I love sweet potato pie. At one point, I got on this kick of making sweet potato pies over and over again, trying to perfect the perfect sweet potato pie. I began with a recipe that my mom gave me, which was a good recipe, but I would tweak it a little bit every time until I finally became the pie master, and I had created the perfect sweet potato pie. But the problem was I, I gained too much confidence. I got a little bit of a big head about my pie skills, and I decided to make a sweet potato pie from memory. I had done it countless times. I got all of the, the ingredients out, and I preheated the oven, and I got everything ready, and I put the pie in just as the oven reached the right temperature and, and stepped back, set the timer, and was waiting for the pie to be done. But about five minutes in, I had a terrible realization. I'd forgotten to put the eggs in the mixture for the pie. So I did what any logical person would do. I got the eggs and I, I beat them together and I pulled the pie out of the oven, which was still mostly liquid, and I dribbled it into the pie and I tried to swirl it the best I could, and then I put it back in there and hoped for the best. But sadly, when I pulled the pie out, what I had was this sweet potato pie scrambled egg casserole. <laughs> it, was, it was inedible. I just forgot one ingredient. I mean, the sugar was in there, the sweet potatoes were in there, there was vanilla in there, there was a lot of good stuff in there. But you see, eggs function as the binding agent in sweet potato pie. They bring all of those other yummy ingredients into harmony so that in the end, they come together and the end result is a wonderful, delicious pie. I left out the binding agent and so the result was disaster. So goes the church. When we seek to exercise gifts that are good gifts, but we leave out the wonderful binding agent of the virtue of love towards one another, the results are disastrous. Let me give you an example. Let's say one believer has studied theology to a deeper level, and so he decides to come alongside a new believer and to teach him some of the truths that he has learned, and yet he does it with a heart and a tone of condescension and pride. The result is rather than being built up and edified in the truth, this young believer feels belittled, cut down, and spiritually squashed. Again, genuine love guides us in the exercise of our gifts so that we do the right thing in the right way. In trying to apply this to my own heart, I just sort of sat back and began to think through what are some of the effects that the virtue of love has on us as we 
exercise our gifts in relationship to one another. And I came up with a list. This is not an exhaustive list, but let me just show you some of the ways that love colors the use of our gifts so that it has the right effect. Think about it this way. Love affects the tone of our voice. Affects the timing of our service. Is this the right time to use this gift in this scenario? The setting of our service. Our prioritization of people over tasks. Our patience with others in service. Our willingness to hear and consider the opinions and desires of others. It affects our joy in serving others. Our humility in service. Love causes us to serve without the need of recognition for our service. It causes us to rejoice in the successes of others as they serve and use their gifts rather than responding in jealousy. It affects our willingness to sacrifice time and resources and possessions for the benefit of others. Our willingness to be inconvenienced for the benefit of others. Our ability to believe the best of the intentions of others as we serve them. Our ability to cover the sin of others and to bear with the weaknesses of others. Even our ability to confront others in a way that strengthens our relationship rather than tearing it apart. You see how love is that binding agent. where You you extend and use a real gift for the benefit of the body And when you do it through love, it accomplishes the end for which it was designed. Now I hope that we understand why Paul says with such confidence, beyond all of these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. It's important for us to take time and apply these truths deeply in our own lives. And I just want to bring a few things to your attention. I want to call you to think on your own life, your own use of the gifts that God's given you in a couple of ways. Number one, let me just ask you, do you love the people of Christ's church? Honestly, do you as an individual love the people of Christ's church? Look around the room, do you love these people? This is your local church. If you've if you belong to our church, this is the application of this truth. Remember the definition of love we began with, the quality of warm regard for and interest in another. Are you cultivating high esteem and affection and love for the people in this room in your heart? The scripture says we should. If you've been in the habit of simply coming to church for your own benefit to get what you can get out of it and then leaving as quickly as possible, understand that that is not demonstrating love for the body of Christ. When we love the people of Christ, we come here to glorify Christ first and foremost and to benefit everybody else. And that means we've got to be in relationship with one another. Our goal cannot simply be to come and get filled up The truth is we get filled up along the way as we're busy filling up others using the gifts God's given us. So if you've had a self-centered approach to church life, let me encourage you this morning to reevaluate your heart. Repent of that. Change your perspective about the church. Begin using the gifts God's given you here to serve the body. Secondly, does love guide the use of your spiritual gifts? Perhaps you are serving in the church. 
You've already gotten plugged in in some way, or you already understand that you're supposed to come for the benefit of others. Okay, if you're serving in the church, are you serving with love so that your gifts actually build up rather than tear down? Do you serve for the glory of Christ and the spiritual good of others? Ask yourself, do I serve? Do I do the things I do because I want people to notice me? Because I want people to compliment me? Because I want people to think a certain way of me? Or do I truly come and humbly serve for the glory of Christ and the benefit of God's people? Let me ask, are you sinfully jealous of others in the service opportunities they have because they've not been given to you? When you're serving on a team or alongside someone else, do you bear with the weaknesses of the people on that team? Do you cover their small, inconvenient sins with love? Or do you seethe in anger against them? Listen, if we all humbly ask ourselves these questions and we begin to really think about the fact that we must serve with love, that the key role that love plays in the church then we will be an Ephesians chapter 4 kind of church. It's my desire that we see that process playing out here at North Lake Bible Church. But it won't happen just because we know the right things. It won't happen just because we're willing to serve. It will happen because we're willing to serve and benefit others through the virtue of love. That's how Christ responds to us. And that's when we're like Christ when we respond to one another in that way. I pray that we would prioritize love at North Lake Bible Church. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us to take seriously this important truth, putting on such a key virtue. It's, it's common. It's, we understand that we're to be those who love and that we have been loved by Christ, and yet so many times... We fall into the temptation to serve with a lack of love, to speak to one another with a lack of love, to, to lack patience and graciousness because our heart ultimately is not filled with love for one another. God, we pray that this would be a body of believers that seriously pursues Ephesians 4, where the saints are being equipped in love and they're using their gifts in love, ultimately that we might all progress in holiness, into the image of your perfect Son. We ask it in his name. Amen.